This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. You guys appreciate you tuning in. It is September. September's nearly gone, but actually we're two-thirds of the way through. So lots of good elk hunting with a bow left to be done, especially if you have a Montana tag that goes all the way to mid-October. It's almost just begun. That second wave of rut will be coming up. But right now it's peak rut probably in most states. Hopefully you're out there grinding it out, chasing bugles and learning a lot about yourself, disconnecting from your cell phone, your email, your texts, your socials, your distractions, your bills. Put all that aside, reconnect with the creator, and get yourself right. Get yourself some grocery shopping done, elk meat in the freezer. If you've never heard this podcast before, it's a personal development podcast that uses the excuse elk hunting. That's right, we leverage elk hunting to make ourselves the best possible versions of ourselves like we do in the intro. That's us. So uh, if this is your first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy. If you are a regular listener, as always, please take the time, give us a review, comment, share this podcast. You can even text a share podcast, especially on an iPhone to somebody who would benefit from listening to this and maybe get challenged to have more discipline, more delayed gratification, more accountability, and do more hard things in the name of better elk hunting, in the name of personal development. want to give shout outs, so let's get right to it. So we have Backcountry e-bikes. They have a discount code with us. It's called ElkShape300. That'll get you $300 off an e-bike. Their bikes are high-end, made for hunting specifically with high-end components. It is an absolute game changer for me in Washington State where I can hunt behind locked gates legally. Kenetrek boots 
I use the guide. Those are the guide series. They are a high top. They are non-insulated. Um, I put gators on those almost half of September. And so uh, $25 off. What you got to do is type in elk shape at checkout. That's it. 25 bucks off. Off-grid food co. They've been making elk shape approved macronutrient dense high quality ingredient bison quail really good dinners use the discount code oak shape 2019 to save 10% Siberian coolers you know there's O'Brien's or Orion's or Yeti's or Canyon's there's all these companies out there Siberian I think is better than them all that's why I hooked up with them and they give you 10% off the alpha series so if you go to their website type in elk shape 2019 and you can save 10% and get yourself at least one 85 quart alpha series and you will see what I'm saying when you see the just the finished product. Holds ice longer. Has a better latch system. Has a cutting board built inside of it. And you a place to store dry ice. Awesome. Caribou game bags out of Colorado. The best synthetic game bags out there. Use discount code ELKSHAPE. Save 15%. That's going to expire at the end of October. Get on it. ELK 101 with Corey Jacobson. You can do the University of Elk Hunting. And you can also do the audio version too. Use a discount code ELKSHAPE to save 20% off on X Hunt out of Missoula, Montana. Discount code is ELKSHAPE, 20% off. I would assume you all have that. Vortex Optics, I would encourage everyone to try the new rangefinder. That 4000 is the greatest rangefinder I've ever had. Rocking the new XO, the 4800, the K3 series. I have a full video on YouTube breaking down everything on that pack. It's like a 40-minute video. Check that out. I'm using Grim Reaper Broadheads, the three-blade micro Hades on elk, and it is full of destruction. That's the best fixed head. Use the fixed broadhead on elk. The end. Trust me. Take my advice. I'm going to be shooting the Vertex and the Traverse from Matthews, but it seems like the Vertex is my number one. I didn't see that coming. It's shorter axle to axle, but honestly, it's been blowing my mind. And I got boning blazers with a massive helical to the left. That's where my arrows are spinning naturally, and I'm set up. We're going to be interviewing Jermaine, also known as Colorado underscore H-A-H, Colorado High Altitude Hunters. He is an elk caller. He's a competitor. He's a wrestler. He's a military guy. He's a wrestling coach. He's a really amazing public land Colorado elk hunter with a lot of reps under his belt. And he's full of positivity. He's not insta-famous. He doesn't hunt the expensive ranches with the famous hunters. He's just a regular guy that's extremely relatable. That's who I relate to. And he's out there doing the really hard stuff, the true test, you know, the one that's got no guarantee, the one that has low odds and uh, the odds are stacked against you and you're going to earn anything and everything that you get from those mountains. That's this guy's specialty is. And so we're bringing him on and we're talking all things elk hunting and fitness and elk calling. So without further ado, here's Jermaine, Elk Shape Podcast. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. We got the uh, Elk Shape Podcast rolling. Welcome to mid-September. Hopefully you're tuning in in between hunts or maybe driving to your hunting spot. You need a little extra motivation. We got you today. Bringing on Jermaine Hodge. He is out of Colorado and I have actually never met him personally, but he's been suggested to me to come on by you listeners. So I listened up, got a hold of him and he obliged. So Jermaine, what's good? Oh, nothing. I mean, uh, everything's good. Uh, just a new day uh, at the pro shop right now. Picking up a brand new bow, getting ready for season. Oh man, you're you're waiting. You're waiting till August first to get a get that new bow in hand. What did you decide on? Um, I got a CT three prime 
Um, I just love the way that thing shoots. You know, I, I said I, I tried to hurry up and I get this bow as fast as I could, but Prime was uh, uh, Prime had some some orders they had to fill before they can get it back. But I just got it, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm confident that that bow is going to go in the woods with me this year. Otherwise, I would just took my backup uh, Matthews, which would have been perfectly fine too. Oh, cool. What do you have for Matthews? Um, I have an older Matthews. I think it's 2012. I have a Z7 Magnum. That thing shoots lights out. It's the most forgiving bow I've ever shot. Well, that's going to be that's a good backup for sure. Or we'll see who gets the nod, who gets the start. But I like that you have two bows. I think that's. I think a lot of guys end up selling their rig once they get a new one. And dude, making bow repairs in the backcountry without a bow press. Uh, that's tough to do. It's nice to stroll down to the truck, grab your backup, confirm, and go. Uh, have you ever had a bow malfunction in the backcountry? No. I, I say malfunction. Depends on your definition of malfunction. I've had some D-loops come off or get, you know, frayed up a little bit. Other than that, I've been very lucky. Now, I can't speak for my wife because I can remember two years ago, she was getting ready to cross a stream, and me being the man that I am, I said, hey, babe, I'm going to hold your your uh, your bow for you so you don't slip and fall. Well, lo and behold, I slip and fall with her bow and bust her sight off. So oh. we did. We had a hiccup there, but luckily we both had the same sight on two different bows. So I just swipped, you know, just swapped it out and did some quick, uh, some quick sight in, and she was good to go. But other than that, for me, no. What pro shop are you at right now? Uh, Bill Pellaringos, Colorado Springs. Okay, cool. I've I've never been to that one, but it's tough to find a good pro shop. What makes this one stand out to you? Um, the the, the people here, I mean, they they are just genuine. I mean, I absolutely love coming in this shop, and then not only that, man. Anytime I need some work done, like some real quick work, they'll take care of me. Most of the time, I'm trying to take care of all my stuff at my house. I do have a bow press, but when it's some really really technical stuff. I'll just bring it up here to Bill Pellaringos, and these guys do a wonderful job for the whole community of Colorado Springs. Shoot, they even serve some of the people down in Pueblo and Denver too. Well, get our listeners tuned into your background. I know very little. I know you're a really inspiring guy and super motivated, really fit, have a wrestling background, military background, but that's all I got. So, fill us in okay. as much as you want. Okay. Um, well, I, I'll start off with uh, who I am and where I'm from, originally from, and then we'll go into like, uh, you know, where I am now. Um, so I'm originally from North Carolina. I, I started wrestling in, in the eighth grade, actually, excuse me, seventh grade, and uh, and then was fortunate enough to win two high school state titles and, and be a high school All-American to it at the same time. And then uh I went on to Lassen College in California for two years, wrestled for a JUCO school there, and then came back to North Carolina. And then after that, it was a stern, you know, I really wanted to pursue the wrestling career, but I also didn't know exactly where to go as far as uh, what team I really wanted to be on and whatnot. So I joined the military with hopes of being a part of uh, the Army team. Didn't know how to get there. Um but I knew that I, if somebody was going to be able to find it, it was going to be me. Um, lo and behold, I got stationed in Korea, um, and that was like a blessing in disguise. I won a couple of wrestling tournaments over there, and then I got um, orders to Fort Carson, Colorado, 
to be a part of the all army program, which is like a sister program to the world class athlete program. Um, came in there, it was 40 other guys that were all army team, but you also had another like 15 to 16 that were training full time that was part of the world class athlete program. Um, fast forward a little bit. I made the world-class athlete program. I wrestled 55 kilos, which is 121 pounds for a number of my career. So I came to Carson in 2005, and then I started wrestling uh, the open level, which is the Olympic-style wrestling with Greco-Roman. It's two different disciplines. And then um, I missed the draw for archery season in 2005. Now we run back. I didn't really start hunting until like the ninth grade. Okay. So now we can go back. I never hunted elk at all to the, at this point. And, um, and then in 2006, I was able to draw a, uh, a draw tag, but it didn't require any points, but you had to draw that tag. And lo and behold, my wife was pregnant at the time and season was going on. And she was like, you got to come home every night. And I, I told myself, I said, if I come home every night, then I'm not going to have the opportunities that everybody else has. So, I did it. I listened to her. I said, I'm going to come back every day, but I got to go out every day. Mm-hmm. So I was able to uh, kill my first elk September 6th. And then September 11th, we had our daughter, Jasmine. And uh, so that was a good year. But I really didn't even know anything about elk hunting at that point. I just knew, hey, I was going to work hard and be able to get it done. But, but at the same time, uh, I was still what I guess you call it a greenhorn didn't know nothing about calling other than driving my wife insane in the house. And, yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and I still do that to this day. Oh yeah. But I think she, she likes it a little bit better than she did when, when I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, so, um, I was able to wrestle, you know, all the way up until 2016. And then I, I laid my shoes down, but I have to contribute a lot of my success on the mat uh, as far as uh, being successful on the mat, I was the same way in the in the field and and uh, just work hard and, and be able to get out there and just go until you can't go no more. But all that hard work came from wrestling and being a, being fit to go up those mountains because if anybody knows elk hunting, man, that altitude will kill you. And uh, being here in Colorado Springs, I think it, we're right at 5,700, uh, I believe something around there. Um, so I get to live at this altitude for a while, but you get some lowlanders, like I got some good friends from North Carolina that come out and hunt with me every year. They have to work twice as hard as I do. And and when they come up here, it, it attacks you for a couple of days before they really get on it. I see. But, yeah. What's the highest you've hunted for elk specifically? So the, the highest, I, I said, say that again. Oh, what's the highest you've hunted elk up in Colorado? Like for guys who haven't been there yet, like, Oh, well shoot. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, yes. We start off season like this year. We'll do a. Uh, I'm, I, my schedule is so busy. We'll do a three day hunt. So I'll leave on Friday. Season starts August thirty first. We'll hunt Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But the early season bulls, like in the area that I'm hunting, they'd like to hang out really, really high, eleven four, almost twelve thousand feet. And the reason being is. Uh, they're not cowed up yet. They're still in bachelor herd. Sometimes you might find a straggler that's out and alone, and he's by himself up there high. So uh, we'll start off season. We'll base camp. Uh, we'll spike. We, we won't even. We'll just hike in and, and set up a little camp 
right around 11,400 feet. And then we'll hunt 12 to 11. And we won't even go lower than that for those, uh, those three days. Yeah, that's legit. And so they're above timberline and they're staying cool, yeah, they're, less bugs, yep. good feed. I mean, the, grease, the grass is so green up there that they love it. And then if you know anything about the snow that we got this year, it's insane. I think we was like 110 over, 110% over our, our uh, average. So it's going to be water everywhere, and, and water's not going to be an issue for sure. But I would definitely say that um, all the grass up there is so, it, it's so green that that's the reason why they hang up that high, too. It's cool, too, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so I got to go back to your wrestling a little bit. After JUCO, you said you kept wrestling North Carolina, whatever. Like, so you got in the you got in the military. What is there some sort of and forgive me for my ignorance. Like, what level are you wrestling at? Is it you know I don't understand the different. I, you know I know there's Olympic wrestling and then I know collegiate wrestling. Which P.S. I always love watching the NCAA tournament. But where were you at in your wrestling? So uh, I wrestled JUCO, which is you have. I'll go back to. Of course, you got high school wrestling, and then you got college wrestling. But then you have three, you have Division One, Two, Three, and then you have also JUCO, which is a, just a two-year uh, college. Yep. So I mean, the difference between you know Division One and JUCO is really no is no difference. The difference is is those schools have a whole lot more population than a JUCO college. Uh, as far as the wrestlers. Uh, the only reason you, you'll see a JUCO wrestler wrestling JUCO is probably because he doesn't have the grades to get into D1 yep. or he was to stay local at a local college of some sort. I chose Lassen College because at the time they were the best JUCO college that that I could get into. And uh, if I went Division One, I, I would have had to sit out. I think they called it at the time Prop 48. I would have had to sit out a whole year and academically prove myself and then the next year I could start wrestling. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to continue wrestling because if I sat out for a whole year, then I, I probably wouldn't be you know, a person that I would be now. So I wanted to just keep going. And then after college, I, I came into the military, and those were just regular tournaments that I wrestled to get into the world-class athlete program. But once you're part of the world-class athlete program, then you, you're basically wrestling the Olympic style wrestling, which is only two styles as freestyle and Greco. Mm -hmm. And I took Greco because I loved, uh, the upper body aspect and how many moves you could possibly do without having to touch their legs. So that's the only difference between freestyle and Greco. The difference is, is uh, freestyle, they can touch their legs and then Greco, you can't touch their legs. And, uh, I wrestled that, that particular, uh, at that level, from 2005 to 2016. Matt, wrestlers are like the most fun to train as a strength coach. Like, hey, run through this brick wall. It'll make you better. They'll do it. Like their work ethic is undeniable. And we got a lot of wrestlers when I owned CrossFit just because it made sense for them. And wrestling is a pretty long season. There's always a tournament. There's always Greco and freestyle offsetting each other. But my point is, is I love training wrestlers. And they always moved on to other things after wrestling. MMA was pretty common. Or they got really into CrossFit because they're just used to that demand on their body. It was almost like an addiction. So 
How did you, what did you do for, for yourself fitness wise once you were done wrestling? I mean, did you just start coaching and get on the mat with the guys? Did you start doing some MMA or some, some other type of form of fitness? What'd you do, man? So, uh, so when I laid my shoes down in 2016, um, I, I just wanted to pass on what I've learned and what, what brought me the success. And, uh, so I, I asked to be a part of the women's program. So I coached the freestyle women's program now, along with a, another coach of mine too as well. But um, I what I tried to do is not just be that coach that's sitting on the background. I want to be interactive. So in order for me to stay in elk shape too, I can't just be off the mat. So I got to get out there and be on the mat too, because I, I contribute a lot of my uh, being in shape to because of wrestling. So if I let that go, then I wasn't going to be in elk shape. So, um, a lot of my, a lot of the way I do it is I'm on the mat. I'm teaching these guys what I've learned. And I'm also still wrestling probably three times out of the week, at least trying to get on the mat and and be as active as possible, especially when we live wrestling too, because it ain't nothing like it. You you could be in any kind of shape, but if you're in wrestling shape, you're in all kinds of shape. I'm not going to argue with that. Uh, I did wrestle in, junior high and it sparked a lot of my interest into off-season training um a couple podcasts back i go into that a little bit but man wrestling really taught me about what true hard work was and kind of gave me a little bit of a why or a catalyst into the weight room but um so you 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 cut your teeth on elk hunting did wrestling or did elk hunting get you into colorado wrestling got me into colorado and then the spark and the passion well, I already had a passion for hunting and archery hunting at that. But uh, when I found out that I could hunt the, the elk here uh, in Colorado, then I, I had another passion outside of wrestling. It was, hey, I got to be in the woods and I got to hear these majestic beasts bugle every year. And um, that's what got me into to Colorado, uh, the wrestling part of it. But um Ever since then, it's been wrestling and hunting. That's that's a good combo. So your true day job is wrestling coaching. Absolutely. Actually, at two uh, thirty, we start a we got a live session over at the Olympic Training Center. So we'll go over there and we we'll push these guys one more good time before they leave for uh, Peru, and they'll go down there and they'll wrestle in Pan Pan Am Championships. Oh, man, that's great. Now, who's their strength and conditioning coach? Well, we have a part of the world-class athlete program. We have our own strength and conditioning coach. His name is Jason Barbara. Uh, he's also a reserve, uh, reserve army. And, but he's for us, he's a civilian. He's our PA plus he's our strength and conditioning. So he serves two different roles. Um, so he serves our, as our doctor and then he serves as, uh, our strength and conditioning coach, but he does a wonderful job. We have our own facility that we can use that's on Fort Carson. But outside of that, if we want more training partners, we'll go over to the, uh, Olympic training center. Now their strength and conditioning coach. Um, I, I'm not sure who their strength and conditioning coach is because our, our particular athletes use the one we use. Uh, we, we rarely lift over there. Yeah, well, I mean, to be a PA and a strength and conditioning coach uh, and be hands-on with just your set of athletes, man, he, he's going to know not, how not to hurt them, which is every strength coach's number one priority is you don't hurt your athletes, and then he'll know workarounds and scaling and 
and basically no weaknesses and try how to tackle them. That's huge. Uh, we're going to get into elk hunting a little bit. So who was your first like mentor or who showed you the ropes or were you uh, in the school of hard knocks? How did it go down? So I really have to give a lot of credit and I, I spoke highly of this, uh, uh, Bill Zadig, uh, Oscar Wood, Glenn Naraka, uh, there's a couple other ones in there, Jason Kutz. These guys were ex-wrestlers, number one. They're ex-wrestlers now, but they, they knew El Conte and that's where the, that's where it started. And then when they kind of lit that fire, then I kind of took off and kind of ventured on my own and started trying to perfect everything. And I really, I, I knew that being in shape was one, being able to call was another, finding the good locations was another. It's a whole bunch of different lines that have to be on an equal playing field. And, but, but I have to contribute a lot of my success to the guys that I started off with. But after that, I kind of took off on my own. Yeah, no, you got to get a little bit of, mentorship is going to cut you know it's going to cut the distance down quite a bit um so with your physical abilities and being lean and mean how much do you would you say you rely on this is a fun topic for me to talk about so what how would you cut it up between elk knowledge slash experience versus just pure grit and determination that you've learned on the mat through hard work where would you say those balance each other out for you personally like for me i tell people man i've elk hunted for for 16 years, 17 years, and I still probably lean more towards grit and determination than I do elk knowledge. Where are you at on that ratio? Um, if I had to pick a particular group of where I'm going to lean, this is a great topic, by the way. Um, if I had to lean towards an area of um, what I, I'm, I'm right with you, it's grit, it's hard work. If you if you're willing and, and able to just grind it out, you're gonna find yourself more than uh, more than ninety percent successful. And then you can throw in the rest of it. But at this point in my in my hunting career, I try to balance out all of it. But I'm gonna lean with you, Dan. I believe that if you can get up there and go, and and know that you can reach that other ridge and that other ridge is nothing to you because you're in such good shape, then you're going to find yourself very successful. So I'm with you if I had to pick a category, but uh, right now in my career, I believe balancing all of it out. And when you could balance all of it out, your success rate jumps tenfold. And that's hands down for me. It was at the beginning of my uh, elk career, elk hunting career, it was grit, grind, go. And that worked. But then to kill and to harvest some of the mature bulls, you have to put in those other categories, being able to call, being able to know where these elk are and, and know what their body language is, is all about. So yes. I'm with you, Dan. Being, being in shape, if, if, you're, if you're a new elk hunter and you're new to it, being in shape is the key in knowing that nothing could take you to another level because you've already done that level before. So let's talk about calling. Uh, you just entered uh, RMF's World Calling Championship. Not sure what category, but you did all right, I'd say. Uh, tell us about how you learned to call your evolution. And, man, brag up a little bit. Tell us how you did. Well, uh, I start off with saying that I was in the men's division at the uh, Elk World Calling Competition. 
in Park City, Utah. And let me tell you something, it was straight amazing. It was such great callers there. I was blown away, but I walked away with, with the win at uh, Vision uh, with a field of like 32 contestants. And uh, it was set up like a uh, uh, NCAA bracket. You got to go through your side of the bracket. And, and if you make it to the semis, then you uh, advance to the next day. If you don't, then you're out of the tournament. And then the, your placings considered wherever you – I'm not sure you would think of that. But um, so – uh, with that being said, uh, I uh, I'll go back to my calling and how I um, learned and, and was taught. So, YouTube is one of the powerful keys for me. Um, I pride myself in I started off with Primo's calls because I I thought that was where it was, and it is, and, and that's great for a beginner. But I wanted to master like diaphragms and being able to call with diaphragms and being able to. Not just use that blue reed that Primos has on their bugle, which is great, but being able to master all the sounds that you hear in the woods. So I started watching Corey Jacobson and what he was doing. And not so much calling demonstrations, because now he puts those calling demonstrations on, but I wanted to look at how he was hunting and the sounds he was making. So I would watch some of his hunting videos and I would drive my wife insane. I would say, you know, I, I try to mimic everything he was doing. And then I would watch other hunting videos and, and what they did. Uh, and then we fast forward into me me trying to compete. I never was a person that wanted to compete in, in uh, worlds or regionals or anything. I actually didn't start competing on the stage until this year. It was February. It was a local tournament in Colorado Springs. And my buddy of mine, they always speak high of me. They're like, man, you get in the woods, you call everything in. They said, man, you, you should be competing on the stage. So they kind of lit me a little fire under me and told me to go to this tournament. So I won this tournament. Tom Deesman from Mile High uh, uh, Note Game Calls, he was there. And he was throwing it on. And he was one of the judges along with his son. And I won that tournament. It was probably seven contestants there. It was local. It wasn't that big. And then they came out and they talked to me and they were like, man, you are good. You need to go and compete with the big dogs. And I'm like, I don't know, man. That's a different world, you know? Yeah. So, I, so uh, I, I, in between schedules, I didn't even practice. I went over to Salt Lake City. I flew into Salt Lake City. I had a one-day turnaround. So I flew in, I competed, and then I left. Well, when I got there, it was like 32 to 35 people in that men's division. And um, let let me tell you, I got whooped up pretty bad. I did my rendition of me being in the woods and, and going crazy. But it was a lot of lessons learned because I watched the whole tournament, the whole competition, and I watched what the judges were looking for. And then I started paying attention to the final five and what they were looking for. And then when I went home, I told myself, I said, I'm, it's just a competitive nature in me. I don't know why, but I said, I am going to make this happen. So I just went back and I started practicing every single call. Not that I wasn't good already at, at those calls, but I wanted to perfect those calls. And uh, I spent a better month going over everything. And I knew the, the bracket style was going to be different So uh, in how they did it. So I said, if I, if I can do a one-on-one -on -one with someone, I think I can win this. So sure enough, it was 
NCAA bracket style, one-on-one judges score. And uh, lo and behold, I won. And, uh, but I have to contribute a lot of that stuff to, to being successful in the woods and practicing using, you know, uh, Corey Jacobson's call. I mean, Corey's uh, videos as uh, guides, Will Primos as, as guides for me as I was coming up. But now I'm like, I'm venturing into a lot of different calls, but I, I, I'm starting to become a really big fan of Jason Phelps calls because I've opened up a number of his calls out of the package and they are ready to go. There's no break in time. And I think anybody can do that. But but Rocky Mountain Elk calls is the same way. They they got some great calls too as well. Dude, this is awesome. So I would be nervous to go compete on that stage just because you're putting yourself out there. But you got over that. You went for it. And then when you're going head-to-head with somebody, I've never been to these. I've seen a little bit online. Uh, is it just one guy goes first and you have five minutes to do whatever you want to do, your sequence, and create some sort of story um, and then you go, how does that work? Okay. So, so you'll come in and you'll first, if you were, if you were like me and you actually seen me, you probably would have seen my heart beating out of my, my chest. <laughs> so nervous. But at the same time, I just say, uh, I, I was laughing at it because I was so nervous. I, I, I've been on big stages. I've thrown, I'm trying to throw a grown man on his head and then I, and I wouldn't even be nervous. And then I got to this tournament, I was super nervous. So what happens is they do our intro and then they tell you how it's going to format. It's a 32 man bracket and whoever, however you're thrown in the bracket, some people based off of last year get seated into the bracket. All right. Then let's say you are uh, number one going against a number 32. Um, the number one, number 32 will draw. So the number one, he's the higher seed. He'll draw a, a number out of a hat. The number is going to be one or two. That means if he draws a one, he's going to be the first one calling. But if he draws a two, he's going to be the second one calling based off of those two competitors competing. Then the, the announcer, he draws three particular calls out of a hat. Those calls, you have to do those calls spot on or as close as your rendition of that particular call. So it was uh, this year was cow calf communication it was lost calf it was estrus bleat uh or estrus um scream um however you want to say it it, to me it's the same thing there was cow barks there was bull barks there were bull chuckles and then uh bugles of course too as well um so they'll draw two cow calls they'll draw one cow call and then they'll draw uh i mean two cow calls one bull call, and then you get 30 seconds at the end for freestyle. Oh, okay. So, so when you get called up to stage and you drew a number one out of the hat, and you, the announcer's going to say something like this, caller number one, cow-calf communication. You have 15 seconds to do your best rendition of a cow and a calf communication or bleats and the rest of it and so on. Then after your 15 seconds, the next caller, he calls 15 seconds. And then it goes back to you, and then you'll repeat that uh, three times. And then at the end, you'll do 30 seconds freestyle, just combining all these different calls into one, sounding like a herd in the woods. And then, uh, and then the, the, the number two caller would do the same thing. But that's how it's run. And then if you win, they'll tally up the scores at the end, and then it goes, you'll go out there and look at your bracket. If you move on, 
then you'll move on in the bracket. But they'll also have the score there too as well. Of what it could be six to one, seven to one. I mean, uh, seven to seven to zero or six one. It's only seven judges, so you can only score seven points total. But you can you can be a four three match, and that four is gonna move on because he's got four of the judges voting for him. Yep. Or he's gotten more points. There, that sounds really interesting. I think that'd be fun to go watch. So you went your first year, and then your second year was this year. No. This year was my first year. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah, ever. I competed in three competitions, and Worlds was the third one. And you won the men's, is it open or beginner? What's it called? Men's men's division. Just the men's Men's division. Then you got one more above me, which is the pro division. Are you going pro next year? Ah, man. You know, the the only reason I would go pro is if I'm making some money from some uh, pro staff or something. Uh, I'd love to win this men's division one more time and then consider maybe possibly signing a, a deal with somebody. But uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not too sure, man, because it would be very, very difficult to compete against Corey Jacobson, Jason Phelps, Dirk, all those guys. Those guys are great. And I imagine if, if you got on the phone with them, they'd probably say Jermaine Hodge is good too. But I, I'm really going to toot their horn because that's where, that's why I contribute to my success is them watching their videos to do that right now. But I'm, I'm considering it. It's, not, it's a possibility. But um, at the same time, that's just – that's for fun. I really like to put meat in the freezer. So, I mean, I think that's more important to me. Well, I'm with you on that. I've had a lot of reps with uh, Dirk in person. He helps me out with my elk shape camps, and um, he's incredible. Like it's, it's there's, there's no there's no joke. He's on another level, and it's it's an advantage for sure in the elk woods. It's undeniable. Um, but you could also argue that you know I've heard elk make horrible elk sounds um, lots of times. So if anyone's out there thinking, man, you got to be a world class elk caller. I'm going to tell you right now, it sure doesn't hurt, but it's not the end-all, be-all. You still got to hunt the win. You still got to get yourself in the, you know, the right spots. And, uh, you know, Corey Jacobson is an incredible elk caller, period. Um, but he's way yeah. better elk hunter than he is elk caller. That's a fact. Uh, let's talk about your elk yeah. hunting pedigree a little bit. So are, do you guide at all, or is it just you hunt for yourself? Nope, I do not guide. I, I'm glad you said that because uh, – um, we I started a company and it's just a uh, sports educational company. It's called We Don't Make Any Money from It. I just want to educate somebody from, that's coming out of state that spends six seven hundred dollars on a tag to be successful. Mm-hmm. Kind of something to Elk One Hundred One, but I'm not more I'm not advanced like like Corey is with his stuff and and those guys. But um, I I purely pride myself in taking out good friends of mine and helping those guys out now if a random random guy came up and asked me to go hunting of course i'd have to get to know him first <laughs> you know hey man this, this just don't happen out of the blue but no i don't i don't guide anything i i am not no registered guide i love taking people out and sharing the experience of a bugling bull coming in hot and you're only 10 to 15 yards away that I, I, I love. So I take some good friends out every year 
and I call it the hunting crew because I got some guys from PA, guys from North Carolina that, that some of them drive out, some of them fly out, and they hunt 10 days with me. And then I got good friends of mine that hunt with me here in Colorado. I know uh, one of my buddies that, that you'll see him if you go on my Instagram account or, or um, Facebook, then you'll see him. His name is Patrick Latrell. He's a good buddy of mine. He's been hunting with me for years. And uh, I pride myself on trying to make sure that he kills his next biggest bull. So, Yeah, that's right. So this is where I'm going to dig in on you, man. So forgive me. Uh, this podcast is about that elk hunting learning curve, dude. You are mentoring, you are bringing in some rookies, some noobs, some East Coast flatlanders, some Midwest guys, and they're hunting with you in Colorado over the counter, dude. So, we got to go over like some of the biggest things that you're seeing with these guys that you're having to teach them from day one, like this, the most basic stuff that they just didn't realize. And you're like, holy smokes, hey, such and such information, and they're like, oh, okay. Like, what's some of that stuff look like? All right. So I I, I want to use uh, – I'll use Brad. Brad is a good friend. Brad Burton from North Carolina. I'll use Zach Vandevender. I'll put their names out there because those are great friends of mine. I grew up with them and went to school with them. I'm going to use them too from North Carolina. You're going to throw them under with, the bus. I'm going to throw them <laughs> they would throw me under the bus, especially Brad. That's awesome. awesome guy. As soon as soon as – those guys decided to come out to Colorado and hunt with me, then they were all about it, but they really didn't know. So they started working out, getting in shape, getting in shape and stuff. And, and But they didn't know what these mountains were like. So I, I tried to explain a lot of this stuff to them on the phone, but it's only so much that you can explain. You really have to be there in person. So, and then the, the setup, the setup that you have to have, on certain situations is the key, right? So they come out, they fly out from North Carolina. They happy, they excited. I get them to camp. We base camped at ten thousand three, oh boy. and wow, it's 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 high up here. I said, yeah, you just you're not even at the half of this. So I took these guys out, and I said, listen, we're gonna go soft early. I know you guys are early in the hunt, so let's just take it easy this first day. Well, easy hunt for me was like. 12 miles in the morning, 12 miles in the evening. That was easy for me. But for them, that wasn't easy. So the first hunt they go on is 12 miles. And they are blown away. It's, it, what, what's easy about this? Anyways, we see and hear nothing. And I was just in there a week ago and them elk were going nuts. So the pressure had moved these elk. So I had to go into some another location and try to locate these bulls again. And sure enough, the next day, we do another grueling 12 in the morning, 12 in the evening, and I'm beating them down. But they, the only difference between someone not being able to, um, for the first time, not being new to it, was that sometimes your setup, playing that win in your setup, is way different than being in the tree stand and you watching this whitetail come down and you're going to smoke them at 25 yards. These elk are like geniuses, turkeys on steroids, and you really, really have to play the wind. You have to know your setup, and if I'm calling or someone's calling for you, then you got to know, hey, I'm going to stay here, or my caller's going to move for me, or I need to advance, or, or all those things, all those factors have to come into play. And you'll see it when you watch like Corey Jacobson, uh, Born and Raised, those guys, 
you'll see their setups and how they set up and maybe the callers moving and whatnot. That's key. And they, those guys didn't know that. So I remember one hunt that I took these guys on. Uh, we went up very, very high. We was at like 11.4, 11.5. And we located two raging bulls. I think both of them broke over 300 from what I seen. Um, so I pushed these guys out in front of me. I wanted them to, to fan out. They both still had tags. And I committed to both of these bulls committed to come in. Dang. They, they, they come in, but they come in following each other. When they came in following each other, the only difference, the only thing that, that saved those bulls from being harvested that year is because the North Carolina boys didn't know how to set up. So they blow the, the, the bull blows out of the, the two, two bulls blow out of there. And I'm bummed because I was like, man, I really want y'all to go down and go down swinging on one of these bulls. Um, but man, I, I, it was a learning curve for those guys, but uh, the next year after that, man, they came in ready and hot. I didn't, I didn't have to hold their hands anymore because they started picking up, and I cut the learning curve down for those guys dramatically. So what would take somebody probably five, six years to learn, which, would, which took me five to six years to learn on my own and with some other mentors and YouTube, it took those guys only two years to learn it. So both of them have been successful in the woods. Uh, one was successful the first year, and then the next one was successful the next year. So my goal this year is to hopefully have both of them tag out, and that would be sweet. And then I know I've cut their learning curve down dramatically. Um, but that that sums it up. I know I use them as an example, but um, yeah, for the for the guys that, that don't don't live here in Colorado, it's very difficult to come in for the first time and be able to harvest an animal. And that's what I kind of wanted to share. And that's what Corey Jacobson and, and all those guys with the great uh, YouTube channels cut the learning curve down for these guys. Yeah. So let's break down that setup. Like what went wrong? Did they just get stationary and didn't move when they could have moved? Were they trying to sneak around like they're whitetail hunting? Uh, did they set up behind something? Um, what do you think led to them not getting their bows pulled back when both bulls over 300, very vocal are coming into your calls? So they got stationary, stayed in their first setup when the bulls actually were probably 200 yards up the hill. They actually could have cut the distance down because they weren't making any noise. I was the one back there calling. So what I, what I had to do as a caller, because I knew they wasn't moving, and I couldn't just yell out, Brad, Zach, move. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like a football, you know, throwing out a football uh, a football play. I couldn't yell that out to them. And uh, so I, I, as a caller, what I did is I knew these guys weren't going to move. So what I did is I started moving backwards and trying to pull the bulls closer. And it worked. It pulled the bulls within 25 yards of them. But... All it took was one little motion, them not being ready. So if they if they knew that the bulls were coming, they should have been at full draw when these bulls were at, you know, 60, 70 yards and didn't see them. They should have been at full draw. That way when them bulls popped out at 25 yards, now you got a broadside shot or whatever shot and you're, you're ready to take a lethal shot. But they wasn't. So they didn't draw their bows in time, number one. And number two, they were stationary at the very beginning. 
which I had to play as a caller. Me being in the woods long enough to know I had to play as a caller. To, I had to pull back just to pull these bulls in close enough to them guys. But I think if they would have cut the distance down a little bit um, from where they were, and then when they knew that those bulls were com- drew their bow already. So mm-hmm. those two is right there played a vital role in not being successful in that particular herd. Definitely. The altitude, no matter what you do, you almost have to acclimate. It could take just 12 hours up to 48, maybe longer. What do you think these guys needed to acclimate to that altitude when they, when you guys arrived and stuff, how'd you do that? So I, I tell those guys, this is two, there's some secrets from everybody. Um, but what I do and I'll use, uh, three, three of them. I'll use my wife too, as an example. Uh, so those guys, when they come in from, from North Carolina, that first day should be very, very light. You shouldn't be doing a, a lot of total hiking. And what I also tell people is hydrate, 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 keep hydrating. I can't stress that enough because um, it has sucked the life out of me. You think you're hydrating enough to hydrate more. And no matter what, uh, you still don't put in enough fluids. And then um, I, I allow them, like, like I said, 24 to 48 hours. But when you're on a 10-day hunt, time time is an enemy. And you need to acclimate as fast as you can. So you make sure that you're in shape before you come. And then when you get here, you can cut that acclimation time down dramatically. What I like to do with my wife is I give her 24 hours. So she'll come up to camp. We won't even hunt for 24 hours. I will, but she'll be at camp just chilling. Make sure you take some, you know, baby aspirin or something. Kind of keep the blood flowing through the body a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then back back to what I was saying, hydration is the key. So even though, you know, you think you, you're drinking enough, you're still probably not drinking enough. But 24 to 48 hours, you should be ready to rock and roll if you're in shape and you're ready to uh, tackle these mountains. And for the lowlanders, it's tough. It's tough. But if you if you put yourself in, in that training aspect, then you'll be all right. You just have to grind it out just a little harder than someone that's training at altitude all the time. Yeah, and you can always like find different elk to hunt. You can always drop down lower um, into a different tier until you're ready to move back up. It's it's not always. I mean, it sounds good on paper, but it's hard to do. But you you got to listen to your body, man. Even me, I've been in shape. I've hunted. I've killed an elk at just a touch over eleven thousand feet, and I'm telling you, the it does the better shape you are, the faster you will adapt. But there's still going to be some adaptation. I live at twenty two hundred feet. I live out west, but I only live at twenty two hundred feet, man. You you have a huge advantage being in Colorado Springs. Like uh, that stuff affects. I'll get a I'll get a little dull headache, and. Um, there's a company called Wilderness Athlete. They make uh, Altitude Advantage. They made it for years. I always found that to help. Have you found anything else besides baby aspirin? Um, I would say, um, for me, I haven't tried. I haven't ventured off and tried like a bunch of uh, different stuff because um, when I was training and, and, and competing, we always got tested by USADA. So I was very, very scared to take stuff that could possibly, um, you know, cost me my career. Yeah. So, so as far as taking stuff in the woods, I, I'm a firm believer in, uh, if, if it's working for you, keep doing it. But, uh, for me, no, if I get that dull headache, 
I'll take me some Motrin or some baby aspirin and, and try to get over that headache and I'll just keep hydrating. But I'm not a big fan of taking many multivitamins or anything to, I, I take, I take men's one a day. I, I do do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's but cool. outside of that, but I am going to try some stuff, uh, to the, like I, I went to that, um, uh, to the competition in Park City Elk Camp, and I got the chance to to sample a couple different things. Mountain Ops has some great pro, uh, stuff, and it's got a shot of caffeine, and that acts like some baby aspirin alone. So I think I'm gonna order some Mountain Ops this year, and, and definitely throw that in my pack. Hit one in the morning, maybe one midday, just enough caffeine to keep any kind of headache away that you might have. Because as you said before, 11,000, 12,000 feet is no joke. Yeah, that's, that's a fact. But I think the, uh, I think the bottom line is listen to your body and don't be macho. It's, it's the real deal. Um, okay. So we talked about the noobs, kind of the, the learning curve a little bit, and then let's go advanced tactics. So you said, you know, grit and termination was going to get you on some bulls, but once you kind of cross that bridge and you want to start trying to kill an older, more mature bull on public land, something's got to change. What is that that you had to change to get into that next level? Okay. That's a great question. So, um, I really truly believe that, uh, outside of being in shape and getting there where the bull is, I believed the factor of being able to make quality sounds and we, we try, and, and there's no science behind it. There's a lot of people that think they might know. And you're, yes, we want to mimic the sounds. We want to sound just like them or, or something like them. Um, but I have a little theory that uh, I go by, and I, I, we, the, the guys joke on me when I talk about it, but I don't know exactly what they're saying. But let's give, uh, let's give an example. When a, when a calf is lost, a lost calf, that calf to me sounds like he or she is saying, mama, 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 mama. And so when I say that, I use the metaphors of sounds that we make as humans, um, being vocal creatures. I try to use those sounds. And when you can make those sounds and those sounds sound really quality, good sounds, then that's a big change and i think a lot of the guys like dirk and all those guys they speak about this but i also put a lot of emotion into my calls and that could be a deal breaker so you can get a bull he's hanging up at 100 150 yards and you're you're making that bugle and he's making a bugle you're making a bugle he's making a bugle the wind's in your favor and he is just staying right there but if you start adding emotion to that call, meaning I'm over here and dragging that into it, then you'll tick that bull off and you'll hear his mood change. So for me, that was the biggest uh, that was the biggest change. When I started adding emotion into my calls and, and trying to mimic exactly what they're saying, I also I'm a firm believer of if a bull if I'm up there and I, I'm in shape and I'm guiding into a great sounding bull, if he bugles, then I have to cut that bugle off. It's nothing worse than when you're talking to someone 
and they cut you off mid-conversation. You start looking at the dude like, you, you're rude. You're very rude. <laughs> and you get a little irritated because it's constantly happening. So if you, if you use that metaphor and relay it to the woods, and you start cutting that bull off, he's going to find out who you are really quick. So he's coming in. He's going to get mad. Now, now, when they have cows and stuff, and they, that big herd bull's got cows, that's a little, little bit more tricky. But you could, you could throw some tricks in the bags that, that can pull that herd bull right off. And one of them being cutting him off or sounding like he's lost a couple cows and you sound like you're just as big of the bull. So I think quality sounds, to answer your question, quality sounds has made the biggest difference for me. Yeah, dude. Especially- and when you said you drove your wife crazy, I can only imagine like I literally am only allowed to practice calling in my truck when no one's in there. And uh, I, I just can't get away with it. It's, it's super annoying to my family. And so that's where I practice. I keep a I have a bugle tube that I don't even take hunting. It's just in my truck at all times and a couple different, you know, I got the Maverick and the, the Phelps gray and green amps. So that's a good place to practice. I want to cover two more things, Jermaine. I know you're busy. So the first one is kind of your system for hunting elk. Are you a base camp kind of guy? If not, are you spiking out or are you literally bivouac hunting with your camp on your back, spending the night wherever you end up at? Like what's your system? All right, so I'll give you my rundown. Uh, I do a couple different ways. Uh, first, I, I like base camp. I know where I'm hunting. I know what unit I'm hunting in. I base camp right at right around 10,300. That's just the average number. Sometimes it's nine. Sometimes it's 10, three. Depends on where I'm going to put my camp. Yeah. I run two Alaknak tents, the big ones uh, with stoves and all the cook stuff. But I like to stay, stay very mobile. So when I go out hunting, that's my camp. But when I go out hunting, I'm hitting location after location after location to locate some of these bulls. I'm not a big get on the side of the mountain and glass and glass and glass. I think there's a appropriate time for stuff like that. But when you're in the rut of September or you're trying to locate bulls, I think you have to stay mobile as possible. So my, I don't even have a tent or anything that's in my backpack. Now, on the flip side, I've already I'm, I got a base camp. I've found the elk, and I've been in there twice, and they're still in there. Then what I might do is to cut my time down, is throw me a little tent in my backpack, sleeping bag, enough to survive for a couple of days with some water filtrations or whatever. And I might move, I might cut five miles off that, camp close to them, maybe a mile, mile and a half away from them. And then it cuts my time down dramatically to get back on these bulls early before they head to bed when it's really hard to get them out of that bed. Um, so I don't like putting the tent on my back, but there's a time for it sometimes. And I said before, I think at the very beginning of, of this podcast, this year we're going to do a three-day hunt. But this year, this is new to me because I don't have a lot of time. So I got I got three days on the front, and then I'm going to hunt the very last nine days of season. So I'll, I will go up, and we're going to put in – me and my buddy Pat, we're going to put uh, – we're going to put camp in our back and we're going to go in. But I know this location good enough to know that there's probably a good five or six herd bulls probably in there ready to fight. 
and especially early, they'll, they they won't be ready to fight, but they'll at least be sounding off. If you get in that magic zone, then you'll, you'll make them go crazy. I remember last year I had some at right around 11,200 going nuts in August, end of August. Just absolutely nuts. But it was no cows with them. Yep. And uh, so this year, we'll, we'll, for the three days, just so we ain't driving around wasting a bunch of time, we'll just go into this one particular location and we'll work like five different drainages. If we don't see them in one drainage, we'll run over and hit them in another drainage. And I know they'll be up there. It's just a matter if we can get one to talk or not. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get one or two to talk. And uh, there's two tags in the pocket. So I, I told uh, my buddy Pat, I said, if we, if we can fill out one of these tags, it'll make it a whole lot easier for that last nine days. Yeah, well, no doubt. So last I want to cover is, you know, kind of try to break down Colorado. There's lots of information out there. I don't want to mess up your program, your areas. But as a whole, let's say guys are rolling in Colorado over the counter. There's so many units that are OTC. Um, where would it, where would you like shove some guys to go where they're they're going to find some elk? Whether they can do something about it, it's on them. And there's going to be hunting pressure no matter where you go, guys. Figure that out right now. Get over other hunters because elk hunting is popular with a bow nowadays more than ever. But do you think the best chances are going to be more that southeast corner of the state? Or do you think anywhere in the state, just learn this unit over and over? Like, where would you shove guys that are coming to Colorado for the first time? So, I mean, I will break this down like this. I would look at... Uh, just look at Colorado as a whole. If you get on the Division of Wildlife, you can go in there and they have a map. Uh, it's a, um, a atlas map that brings up. And then they have the units broke down. And then they'll also show you draw units and over-the-counter units. So if you just get the synopsis, which is the brochure, and it'll show you, if you flip to the elk side, it'll show you that these are the over-the-counter units. Okay, so now you got a picture of the over-the-counter units, and you know where to look at. Then I'll look at uh, the herds. What herds? Because they they title all these herds out here. You have the Kenosha herd. You have the, um, I think, White River herd. You have the uh, San Juan herd. And then I would look at elk migrations on that Colorado Division of Wildlife map. And I would look at the concentration. So for me, if I was coming from some other state and I wanted to hunt uh, Colorado, I'm going to look at some of the biggest herds. And I'm going to take those biggest herds. Now I'm going to see what over-the-counter units are in that particular area. And the next thing I'm going to do is, all right, that's done. I picked out three units I want to hunt. They're right by, by, by each other or within driving distance. After I do that, then I'm going to bring open up all my maps and start dissecting the maps. Me personally, I like dark, deep pockets, um, high altitude areas, uh, places that there's hardly roads. Those are the places that I'm looking for. And if you can find that, then I think you're going to be right in the mix of finding elk every year. And there's no doubt about it. It's very hard. And you're going to run into pressure. Even the areas that I hunt in, it's lots of pressure. But I just get way away from that pressure. And if I start finding out that it's pressure in that area, then I'll go find me a different area. Because what happens is you'll end up pushing all the elk into a different um, a different drainage or a different bowl. Or yeah. maybe even over the mountain to the other side. That's incredible information right there. I think that's awesome. I think you're right on, man. Like figure out elk are nomadic. They travel long distances. They don't 
generally stay in the same area and there's going to be hunting pressure. It's either get in early and get there right when pressure hits or have a plan to adapt to where they move once pressure comes and where in those deep dark holes, man. It's those places that people don't want to go and it's it's really not that hard to to figure out where those are cuz you'll be just about killing yourself to get in there, but um that's your best chance and then you can just figure out how to get that elk meat out. <laughs> uh cross that bridge when you get there. So Jermaine, you're married, you have one kid, two kids, two kids. Boy and a I hit a home run. I'm done now, but uh, I hit a home run on, on the first two, so I'm done with two. I got a baby boy. He's nine years old, and I got a daughter that's turning 13 in September, which is very unfortunate for her and my wife having September birthdays. <sighs> Bud, come on, man. That is brutal. Well, as long as they know. They know, and I, and I have – and I, they know. I think we'll, we'll celebrate a little bit. We, we're trying to we're laughing about it as joking about it as as a family but they want to push their birthdays to october so we can celebrate them a little bit better but i i do a very good job of making sure they're very taken care of as far as gifts and knowing that i i really care um but we we we're a hunting family and we love hunting so they also know that and they also know the work that that's put in for um especially elk season during september and and they, they know the passion that, that I have and they have for it too as well. Yeah, man, I love it. Well, family comes first and that they can – a hunting family will get that, which is really cool that you've created that. Um, when you are in Colorado, I, I know that they've proposed some changes to, you know, some – I think 2020 and, and going further, like shortening up your season or I'm not sure what. You will know better than me. And then contending with – some of those OTC units, the muzzleloader guys get to start at a certain date. Like, I guess we'll end there. Like, what does that all look like? Well, I, I'll share as much information as I know as uh, right now. Um, of course, they're proposing to keep um, archery at the very beginning of, of September, kind of like it is now, maybe even deeper into September. I think there was a lot of complaints about that. Um, as far as how long the season is going to go? I, I believe it's is that a is that a standstill? It's gonna it's gonna last at least thirty days because you you're thinking about this, you're hunting with a primitive weapon. It takes a lot longer to to kill an elk sometimes, and then uh, you also want to be maximizing the, the 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 rut, the time of the rut, and when it when it happens because sometimes the rut happens late, and then first season gets the whack at them, and they they do a good job at it, but. So I think they're going to keep the next year. We'll have a better view at this, but next year what I'm predicting that they'll do is they'll start season in September or keep it like where it is and run it all the way through the end of September. Now, as far as muzzleloaders, I don't know about muzzleloaders. They may even keep it exactly the way it is where they run it simultaneously right in the middle of September. Oh, so yeah, I don't like that as a bow hunter. I don't like that the muzzies guy, the muzzy guys can come in middle September because they have a little bit more range than a bow, and those things make yeah. sounds. I've been out there with archery equipment on over-the-counter units, and I've heard boom, and no more sounds from any elk. And you're like, oh Jesus, let me go find me a new location, and that's tough. That's very tough. But I also think of it like this: 
if I'm in a dark, deep hole that nobody even wants to go to and I'm barely want to go to it, then I'm probably not even going to see the mother load anyways. Um, but you have a select few to get out there and they get on it, man. So I don't, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm 50, 50. I've had some run-ins with some, uh, muzzle guys that, you know, uh, particularly, you know, have a lot more range than, than a bow and they can get out there. Some of those muzzles now, 150, 200 yards with open sights. So that's incredible. And you can't do that with a bow. So yeah, they, I, I think if, if it was my opinion and I'm being biased cause I'm an archery hunter. I would probably run archery just like it is all the way through the end of September. And then at the very end of archery season, you run a week and a half, uh, two weeks or two weekends that they run uh, muzzleloader season, run it right at the end of, of archery season. And it's, it'll help both of us, muzzleloaders in, in archery, I think. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm highly critical of Washington State, but they, they, they have a very short archery season. It's usually only like, 14 days somewhere in there um but there's no muzzy going on simultaneously and they shut it down usually by the peak of the rut like 22nd 23rd it's closed and then it's closed until muzzy opens up which is like um it's a floating opener like many states so uh it could be any as early as october 3rd uh usually somewhere around october 7th or 8th and then i think they give them seven days uh it's i still think that's really good hunting um with a with a muzzleloader in your hand, that's still really really good hunting. But I just don't see how those two coexist. Like, so do you have to wear hunter orange once muzzleloader guys step in the woods, or not a big deal? No, you do. You, some people choose to, but that is not a not a rule in Colorado. But if you have a firearm in your hand, you must wear blaze orange. Or if you're a female, you can wear blaze pink. Okay. Fluorescent. Okay. Okay. And it's got to be solid. It can't be like, it's blaze, yep, it it's solid. Yeah, it can't be, it's got to be a solid color. Because yeah. you'll see some of that blaze orange with the a camel pattern in it. Yeah. You can't have that. You can have a solid orange or a solid fluorescent pink. Yep, that makes sense. And, and for me, I don't even worry about wearing that stuff because I'm nine times out of ten, I see those guys at the truck getting out of the truck probably the same time that I get out of the truck and I've left them two miles back there by the time they even get to where I was, if they can, then, then I'm gone and I'm five miles in front of them. Yeah, I've dude. already had to You're like a forest ninja, Jermaine. Well, dude, thanks for coming on and, and dropping knowledge. This podcast is airing September 20th. So for those listening, man, I hope you kind of took some nuggets away. Maybe you're already hunted and you're back at camp or driving to your next spot and you're just kind of looking for a little nugget of information. Here you go. And uh, Jermaine, where can people learn more about your website, your social, and, and keep up with what you're doing? Um, they can reach out at uh, Instagram at, uh, at Colorado uh, underscore ha, which is H-A-H. Or you can look us up, uh, look me up on Facebook, which is Jermaine Hodge. And then uh, you can also find my Facebook page under uh, Colorado High Altitude Hunters. Yeah. Well, dude, good luck with that new that new bow that you got coming your way. Hopefully, you get that thing doped in. What uh, what are you putting on it today? Oh, I'm. It's done. It's all done. It's uh, it's so you, we got a prime CT three. We got the uh, we got the tight spot five uh, quiver with the uh, Sitka Alpine colors. 
on there. It's got the Sika Alpine limbs. I have a uh, Vapor Trail. The the V, I think is their newest one. Uh, their drop away rest. And then we have uh, the HHA Kingpin three three pin adjustable sight on there. Game on. Well, good luck to you. Keep in touch. We'll bring you on next year after you go win that men's division again. We'll talk about how to go pro. And um, good luck with your family and, and your business and your training and your coaching. Um, I would love to meet you in person, work out with you, shoot bows. So I think we're doing an elk shape camp in Colorado next year. It's uh, let's see, it's going to be in April at No Limits Archery. And um, I think we're going to do with, with uh, Phil Mendoza's. That's his archery shop. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, let, let me know and I'll, I'll be up there. I'll come up there. Uh depends on the time frame and if I'm in if I'm in town, I'm I'm always game. Okay. I'll let you know, brother. All righty. Well, I appreciate you having us on our show, on your show. Definitely, Jermaine. And good luck this season, bro. Stay safe. All right. Thank you, Dan. All right. Take care, man. And that's a wrap, guys. Thanks for tuning in. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, so I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this one. I want to thank Jermaine for coming on, and I want to thank you all for continuing to work hard towards your goals and continue to make yourself the best version of yourself through elk hunting. Um, Just be safe out there. Good luck the rest of the season, and we'll catch you guys in October.